You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Church, I don't know if you know this, but there is no perfect church. You know that? There's no perfect church, but we do believe that there are shared characteristics that honor the Lord and exalt Him among His people as we are consistently, constantly looking to Christ and living in light of the person and saving work of Christ. There are characteristics that happen in the church, and we believe that out of those characteristics blooms not a perfect church, but a faithful church, a faithful church. A few weeks ago, we saw that one characteristic of a Christ-centered church is that our personal redemption in Christ should lead to our pursuit of redemptive relationships with one another. Today, we see how we are to be a community glad in grace. As we are aware of the grace of our precious Savior that we have received in Christ, it is to cultivate within us a community glad in grace. The grace we have received should lead to our constant seeing and celebrating grace in one another's lives, which will encourage a church community, and it's another means in which the Lord is building His church. You might have heard that if you've been here since we've started or for a, long, a matter of you know, a year or so, you've heard us say that seeing and celebrating grace, or maybe you've heard us say highlighting evidence of grace. Evidence is a grace. It's not something that we created on our own. We're not creative enough to do that. But it is something we share among our family of churches. We talk about it often. We, we kind of say we are, a same, we are same, thing, same things churches. Same things. There's not a whole lot of stuff to get out of the bag to offer to you. But we have something really marvelous to offer. Christ. We're a same things church. We're just going to keep going to Christ and seeing how Christ and the grace of Christ affects all of life, right? My family, we were recently, I feel like I start off many sermons, we were watching a show. I feel like I've said that so many times. We recently were watching a show where this group of friends split up and they traveled to different places across the country. So just all over the place to just so many different places looking for the most valuable crystals, It was interesting because as they split up, each one of them encountered a similar situation. They all realized they didn't quite know what they were actually looking for. They said, we were going to go look for crystals, but what do they even look like? Where do we find them? Where are they? They go to this pit or a hole in the side of a mountain, and to their eyes, all they saw was dirt and rocks, something that seemed very worthless. To them, they each needed someone who, who knew what they were looking for to come alongside them and help them see what they couldn't see at first. To begin to train their eyes to see this treasure that was actually there under all the dirt and rocks and hard stuff. As, as one guy is walking in a, in a rock pit, it just looks like rocks and dirt. He's just walking and he's even saying like, I don't even know, like I'm looking, I don't know what I'm looking for. And the person with a trained eye is with him and they're, they're helping him. They stop him all of a sudden and they tell him, look what you just passed over. 
Look what you just walked over. And as he turns and looks with greater intention at what appeared to only be dirty, rocky ground, he begins to see beautiful, colorful sparkles of crystals everywhere. I, I think even this man, judging by his response, because his, his response wasn't just, oh, wow, look, look at those crystals. No, he was, he, as he's walking in what appeared to be just dirt and worthless things, as, he, as his attention is pointed to the beauty and worth that is actually there, his heart explodes. He, he, he's amazed. Whoa, those are there. Look how beautiful this is. I was just walking right over these things, not even paying attention to them just seeing the dirt and rocks, but there are these beautiful crystals right there to gaze upon. And so he begins to almost mine them out, draw them out, collecting them. And he goes and shows his friends. Ultimately, they all gather together and they show, look at the crystals that I have found. Look at these amazing crystals. It would be a shame, I think, if that man left the side of that mountain or the rock pit still believing that all that was was just a pile of dirt and rocks that were worthless. It would be a shame to walk away and miss the beautiful, glorious treasure that was really there. As Christians, if we're not careful, I think we can live this way among one another. I think we can live this way in how we perceive the church. We can be more prone to see the dirt of people's lives, the areas of needed growth or failures or weaknesses, than we are aware of God's good and gracious work, the treasure of His presence and power in the lives of His people. And so then we treat, as we're aware more of the dirt, we, we can be tempted to treat one another more critically and lack patience and faith for growth in people's lives and lack encouragement and affection and gratefulness for one another because essentially in our eyes, all we are seeing is a dirty pile of rocks when we look at the church, when we look at one another. The odds are, if we treat the church that way, it most likely doesn't stop there. It most likely carries over into every part of life in our homes, with our spouse, with our children, with roommates, in our workplace, with co-workers, on and on. It doesn't mean that we don't address sin or correct when needed. I'm not, I'm not saying that. So when you hear this sermon, don't, don't hear that. I, and I think we're going to draw some of that out later. But sometimes I do think that we can live life with this critical heart. We're Christians saved by grace. But then we gather with other Christians saved by grace and we have this critical heart of one another, of everyone and everything and everybody's walking on eggshells around us because truth bombs are being thrown at every which way all the while. All the while, pointing out needed growth seems to become the main thing of the church instead of Christ. We may preach Christ, yet a constant critical heart reveals something. It reveals that we are not truly living in light of the person and work of Christ. We are unaware of grace. 
And so we're critical. We lack joy because we're unaware of the glorious beauty of what Christ has already done, what he is currently doing, and what he intends to fully do in the life of the church. A challenge for us right away. May we not look at the church like it's just a dirty pile of rocks or one another. But there is beauty, a God-word beauty found in his people, all of them. You hear it often, right? In, in the New Testament, you hear Paul, you hear Peter, you hear these guys say, start off their letters to imperfect churches. But how do they start off? I give thanks for all of you. Well, isn't he going to correct everybody? Our impulse would be, I want to give thanks for Joe Smo. Look how he's struggling over there. I don't feel thankful for that guy. Isn't that our impulse? But yet the impulse of Scripture, of, these, of what God lays out before us is, I give thanks for each of you. And we're going to hear, how is that? How can that happen in the life of the church? How can that take place? God's word to us, meant to instruct us and lead us, shows us that the overall aroma of the church is one that is seeing God at work and being glad, people. Being glad in seeing him at work and so then encouraging one another in the faith with a commitment to patient growth in grace. There are many glimpses of this in Scripture. I just kind of highlighted some of that. But we see one of those glimpses in Acts 11, where it's as if the Word holds up for us the life of Barnabas as a Christ-like example to us as we seek to live out this, this glad-in-grace type of truth, as we seek to live this out among one another. So follow along with me as I read Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you with all sorts of baggage. We come to you maybe aware of where we tend to be critical of the church, maybe where we tend to see all of the dirt. And Lord, we just ask, would you show us the beauty of grace that's there? Would you renew our minds and our hearts? Would you heal where there is wounds? Would you give life to us? 
Would you make us glad in grace? We love you. Thank you for loving us when we were so messy. Thank you for moving towards us when we were so undeserving. And you still do it today. Fill our hearts with thankfulness and affection. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. Amen. This passage opens up with believers being scattered from Jerusalem. They're they're being scattered from the persecution of Stephen in Acts chapter 4, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned to death, and now so they're being scattered all over the place. And as these believers travel to the cities of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they begin to evangelize, and they share the word of the Lord, and we read that the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number of what we understand to be both Jews and Greek-speaking Gentiles. If you even look at your Bible, there's probably a note there when it talks about the Hellenists there, because earlier in Acts, the Hellenists seems to be Greek-speaking Jews and believers, and then another time it's mentioned, it seems to be Greek-speaking Jews who were non-believers, and then here it seems to be as if he's speaking about Greek-speaking non-Jews, Gentiles, And so it seems as if the church is being built up of both Jews and these Gentiles or pagans coming to faith and forming one church together in Antioch. This is the church the Lord is building. It's clear it says that, right? Lord Hand was with them and many were added to the church. The Lord is building this church and the people the Lord is bringing into his family are the religious and the pagan. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Those who would have worshipped Yahweh and those who would have worshipped false idols have both turned to Christ as their Savior and Lord and become one church and one family in Antioch. It's amazing. It was a miraculous enough work that the church in Jerusalem hears about what is happening in Antioch and they send a trusted brother in the Lord called Barnabas to investigate and examine what is happening in this church. I love that the Scripture gives us glimpses of people who love Christ and are living for the glory of Christ. And the Scripture seems to put them in front of us, not so that we can idolize them or worship them, but so that we can learn from them. I do think at times, especially in our Reformed camp, we can tend, we can tend to say, oh, we can't learn anything from these guys you know, we can't have a whole sermon looking at these guys because we're afraid we're going to idolize or worship them. We're not going to idolize and worship these men. We're going to see how they point us to Christ. And Christ has put them before us. The Word has clearly made point to show us their lives so we can learn from them. As they follow Christ, we can follow suit. Okay? We first hear of Barnabas in Acts 4, and we learn that his actual name is Joseph. And having gone to faith in Christ or coming to faith in Christ, he joins with the believers in Jerusalem in selling a field that belonged to him and giving the money to the church. Not only was he following Christ in a heart of generosity, but he must have also been a sweet encouragement to the church community because he's given the nickname, it's a nickname, Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Imagine the way he must have been in the local church for them to say, you're no longer Joseph. Oh my, you are a man of encouragement. I love that. The scripture makes point to tell us this about him. 
And we believe all of Scripture is profitable for us, right? There's a reason why the Scripture points this out. This believer who is so known for his encouragement that he's given a new name for it. And in the wisdom of the church in Jerusalem, this is the man they send to investigate and examine the church in Antioch, a man of encouragement. I can't help but think Barnabas was the right guy for this job. Sometimes when we think of investigating or examining things or people, we often treat the workplace this way, we almost, it's almost like we want the person with the most critical eye. Well, let's send the person who's just going to see all the flaws. But what do we see here? They send the brother of encouragement to examine this young church to investigate this young church. I think he's the right guy for the job. Who would you want coming into this young, fragile, immature church to examine it? The person whose eyes are more keenly aware of criticism and the black dot and can point out every failure. And as they leave, it's kind of like they leave a wake of discouragement and hearts that are damaged left behind them. Or a man who can come into this young fragile, immature church with eyes that rightly see where it needs to grow, but whose eyes are even more aware of seeing where God is at work. Encouragement, having the sense of encouragement, exhorting a church, urging, urging others, encouragement, it is aware. It is aware of God at work in people, and it highlights it. It brings it to attention. It encourages people, keep going that direction. It's a good direction. Keep going. Keep moving. I think of, I think of cross country. If you ever run cross country, I have, I won't, I'll spare you my story of cross country. I got tricked to run cross country like two times. I thought it meant running my sprint races across the country. And I found out, no, it's running three miles across country ground. I had no idea. I'll spare you the details of that. It was shocking to me, though. But as you're running, you have people strategically placed along the trail at strategic places. And what are they doing? They're calling out where that, this is your time. This is how you're doing. Keep going. You're doing well. Keep running. There's strategic places of encouragement and identification to keep the runners running with hope. I can't help that the church of Jerusalem would send a man of encouragement to this little bitty new church. And I love it. I love it. He comes in, not so he can leave behind him discouraged hearts, pointing out every flaw and needed growth, he comes in so he can leave them encouraged in the faith, growing and going forward with glad hearts. First question for us. If you or I were sent to examine this church, think of your, when you examine things, when you're in a posture of examination, how would you leave the church? Would you be the one coming in? Every flaw, I'm on top of it. Nothing's getting by me. And I'm going to let everyone know it. Or, I see God at work here. 
and here's how I see it. And yes, there's needed growth and that must be addressed. But even more than the, the needed growth, I, what looms larger is God is at work and I'm aware. Which are you? Would you leave the church encouraged with growing and glad hearts or discouraged and damaged? Here's what Barnabas, this man of encouragement, does. First, he sees and celebrates the grace of God in the church. That's our first point. As we grow in observing our brother and following Christ together, seeing and celebrating grace in one another. Verse 23, it says, verse 23, that he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them. He urged them, or probably a more fitting translation, in fact, some of your translations may even say, encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. His eyes are set first on seeing the grace of God. He walks into the room, and his eyes first see the grace of God. He's then glad in that grace and then exhorts or encourages them in the faith. Often I think we have this underlying assumption that the early church was perfect. I can tend to think that sometimes. Like I, it's like I forget. I can read these things about Antioch or Jerusalem, and it's like, oh, I just, they're just the perfect church. And the reality is, when you read the rest of the New Testament letters, they give us glimpses of what's happening to these churches in the book of Acts, right? We get these more in-depth, greater details of what's actually happening in the churches. And it wasn't all pretty. It wasn't always good. It was messy ministry. Antioch was a church of brand new believers. <laughs> when we went through Thessalonians, I remember just highlighting this we got to think about that for a moment. Imagine a church of brand new believers, the entire church. Can you imagine what they're coming out of and what they're, what, I mean, the sanctifying work that's needing to take place in the life of the church, what they don't know about the word of the Lord and what they need to grow in, what they're having to turn away from and stop practicing or doing or enjoying and now learning what's good and godly and right on this side. And they're all gathered together all with their past, all with the baggage, all with the hurts, everything. And they, here they are, they're coming together. And I, I don't know about you, but when I first came to Christ, there were a lot of things I had to learn that were not okay as a Christ follower to do or to say. Ponder your own self as a new believer. You probably didn't have it all together at first. Immature, unknowledgeable, just trying not to use bad words anymore, right? Church, I can't tell you how many times when I first became a believer, there were some things that, did, that were immediate. There were some things in my life that were just immediate. And there were some things that just, the Lord was progressively sanctifying me. And sometimes it came out in church. You can imagine what a whole church filled with new believers would look like. It'd be easy to walk in and say, oh boy, this, 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 that, boom. Let me write it up and report to Jerusalem, right? We have to ask ourselves, what would our impulse be in response to examining this church? 
I'm more aware of the needed growth and lack, and so I feel criticism coming on, or I see grace. God has been and is and at work here, and I'm glad in that grace, and I let you know that God is at work, so I encourage you on in the faith. Where would we fall? I love this. I, I read this in a, as I was preparing for the sermon. I was reading a book on humility, and I was reminded of this. It was, it was so good. This old Linus and Lucy newspaper. Do you have, have, some of us don't even know what newspapers are, maybe, in this room, but there are newspapers in this world, and they have cartoons on them, and there was a Linus and Lucy cartoon that would come out all the time, and it was, you know, Charlie Brown, or I think it was called Peanuts or something. They had one where Linus is sitting in a chair reading, minding his own business, not doing anything, when Lucy walks up, and without being provoked at all, she casually just passes by and says, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. And Linus says, what happens? I can feel a criticism coming on. That's what she says. We can be tempted to live this way. In, in, instead of being a community glad in grace, we can become a community quick to criticize. You can see the difference in a church body. A community that's glad in grace is aware what they've received in Christ. So they're humbled in Christ. They aware, they're aware of all of their imperfections of what they once were, rebel sinners deserving of the wrath of God. And yet God would look at me in my worst and set his affection upon me. And his son would, would come and accomplish the salvation to save me, to take upon himself the punishment that I deserve, the wrath I deserve, all put on him, so that then I could be welcomed into his family. God himself looks upon us knows us in all of our ugliness and sin and yet moves towards us in relationship. A church that's glad in grace is aware of that and has the, the inner workings of that grace in their own hearts they're, as they're singing songs, as they're hearing the preaching of the word, they are aware of that and, and God is at work making them humble and happy people. And so now as they engage one another, they're dealing with one another graciously in light of the grace they've received. You see it in a church. You see it in the body. You see it in the way they deal with one another patiently, enduring with each other, loving one another in light of grace. Christ has loved me so undeservingly. Who am I to withhold my affection from you? Who am I to make you try to earn my love when I've done nothing to earn the love of God? Who am I to not forgive you and to hold your sins against you when the God of the universe doesn't hold my sin against me? Do you see how grace informs a community? It changes a community. You see it. You, you taste it. It's an aroma within the body of Christ. The same is true for the other side constantly critical body who is unaware of grace. There is not a gladness. There may be a singing. There may be a submitting to preaching. There may be praying. 
But oh boy, when you rub shoulders with everyone in the community, it feels as if, oh, man, I, it's like the weight of God is still being put upon me. Every sin, every failure, every weakness, every inability is just being thrown upon me. And it's heavy and it's joyless. You see it. You feel it. When we talk about grace, you've often heard us use a simple definition, getting what we don't deserve. But in that definition, there's so much to it. It's like, I was thinking, it's like a firecracker. There's just like this little thing that you're like, what, what is that going to do? And then you see your neighbor go into the middle of the street and light that little thing, and the whole house explodes or something. It's just amazing. Our neighborhood is like, people are going crazy in the, these little things. But it explodes, and there's color, and life, and it's loud, and it's vibrant. That is like grace when we see it in the Scripture. We could simply define it as, yes, it's getting what we don't deserve. But when you begin to look at it and unpack it, it's so much bigger. It's so much more to it. When you see grace talked about in the Scripture, and even I think this is going to fall short of capturing it all, you see the power of God. You see the presence of God. You see the action of God, the work of God, the loving kindness of God upon people all undeserved, all unearned, and all expressions of his goodness. How can all that be packed into one word? I don't know, but when I read the scripture, it is. There's a throne of grace. How can it be a throne of grace? When great, it's like grace over here. No, and then you get more grace when you come to the throne of grace. And then grace saves us, grace sustains us, grace for power and living. What? So you begin to see it's, it's the power of God. It's the presence of God. It's, it's God with us. It's God's action. It's God's work. It's his loving kindness. All of it, like a firecracker, just put into one grace. So then, to see God's grace, I'll just do a smaller definition, but a little bit bigger than the, the, the really small one. To see God's grace is to be able to see how God is so kindly present and powerfully at work in the lives of people. To see God's grace in the body is to see him kindly, present, and powerfully at work in the lives of people. And a community that celebrates grace gives thanks when they see it. And they help others see it. I think it encourages us, encourages one another on in the church. Here are some ways we see grace in the lives of others. We see his transforming grace. We, his, we see his sustaining grace. And we even see his common grace in people who are believers. So his transforming grace as he works in people's lives, making them more into the image of Christ's likeness. We're aware that there is always going to be needed growth, but we see how the Lord is presently at work sanctifying them, growing them to turn away from sin. And when they blow it, they confess it and, and turn to the Lord instead of run away from the Lord as they maybe would have once done apart from the grace of God. We see it and we celebrate it. That's God's work in someone. That's God's work in people. As people confess that, that's why we call our moment of confession and grace. Because as we confess, we're looking to the Lord, we're turning to Him. We're taking our sin struggle to Him. A culture, 
A community that's not glad in grace is terrified to confess. Because there's no grace attached to their confession. There's no grace attached to those who are hearing the confession. A community glad in grace confesses freely because they know their sin's already paid for. And we see it and we celebrate it in one another. It's all grace. We see his transforming grace taking someone who was once a rebel sinner, devoid of the Spirit, but now we see glimpses of his grace through the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And we celebrate it. Kindness. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. All of it. As we see the outworking of those things in people's lives in the church, we celebrate it. Because people don't do that left to themselves. It's the work and kindness of the Lord at work in people, the fruit of the Spirit. And we see it as we observe the gifts of the Spirit. As people live life in the body of the church and they, they work and labor and serve in these amazing sweet gifts, all sorts of gifts. Though imperfect as they are, God is present and at work. And so we're glad. We're glad. Our eyes are fixed on transforming grace. We see his sustaining grace as his people endure trial and trouble, yet persevere in the faith. There may be moments, we talked about this so many times, where they're filled with tears and struggle, but yet even a weak prayer is still a prayer that's turning to the Lord. And so here they are in weakness, turning to the Lord, trusting him and entrusting their lives to him. And we know that the only way weak people do that is that there is a God near to them, strengthening them, helping them, upholding them to even lean towards God, right? I think of so many people, I have seen people in, in a medical bed, in a hospital, and it's as if they could do nothing, nothing. But yet in weakness, I've heard them pray or receive the word that is a grace of God at work in them. That they would even long to hear the word. That they would even lean towards the Lord in such a manner. And we celebrate it. We see it and we're glad in it. So we see transforming grace. We see a sustaining grace and maybe even common grace. Oh man. Well, I'll share it in just a moment. It's seeing God's power and presence and undeserved kindness in a wayward world that doesn't deserve any of it, right? We often see his common grace through like when we get rain and, and it blesses our community or, you know, we often think of it in just those ways or, or having life in general. The God's people and those who are not his people both get oxygen and are alive and breathing today. We see common grace in those ways. But common grace, these people are even image bearers. They too are image bearers, but yet they are broken images because of sin, right? They don't reflect God as they should. They don't bring glory to God as they should, but yet they're still image bearers. And so, when a wayward child, an unbelieving child, serves his siblings or serves his family, there's God's common grace at work. And there's reason to celebrate. When a wayward man cares for someone in need generously, some people would say, oh, guy should have given his money to the church. A heart that's glad in grace says, wow, 
Only by God's common grace could, could a wayward man have an impulse and desire to want to give generously and celebrate. Or a wayward woman who cares sacrificially for those in her home. It's all God's common grace. So what does that all add up to? God is at work everywhere bringing about his good in a sin-filled world and especially in his church being sanctified. Barnabas knew it. Barnabas could see it. Barnabas celebrated it. Do you know it? Do you see it? Do you celebrate it? Or are you known more for, I just feel a criticism coming on. Are we the, are we the person who sees the wayward man giving to the generous person on the side of the street, and yet we're, we're provoked with jealousy, we're angry by it, we're bothered by it? Or rather, wow, Lord, you even care for those in need through wayward people. How amazing you are. Would others say you are glad in grace or constantly critical? When we lack in seeing and celebrating God's grace, our impulse will be to criticize, to grumble and complain about one another and to be impatient and annoyed with the weakness of others. And often it is an outworking of pride as we think highly of ourselves and lowly of everyone else. And so not only do we lack joy, but people begin to avoid us because nothing but discouragement seems to come out of our mouths. Often, this person, and here's first, let me preface this. What I'm about to share is not you. I have not seen this in you, but I have seen it in some, not here. Often the person who is less aware of grace, unaware and glad in grace and constantly critical, often this person is the one who will never settle on a church. Because no church is ever good enough for them. I think at the heart of some of the critical stuff is a self-righteous heart. When we see Barnabas's heart posture towards the church, he's not grumbling about them. He's not complaining about them. <laughs> you would be amazed what illustrations come to mind when <laughs> a pastor is preaching and what self-control has to be practiced at times. <laughs> he's not annoyed with their areas of needed growth. He doesn't blast these saints for all the ways they need to do things better or every area they're blowing in. He uses his word to impart grace and build them up. Ephesians 4.29, Colossians 4, using our words to build up, to impart grace. He encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Yes, they need to grow, but his heart is first glad because he is aware that God is already at work in them, just as God is at work in himself and it enables him to deal graciously with others. And so he joyfully encourages them on in the faith. Oh, church, shouldn't we long to live this way with one another in light of the grace we've received? Shouldn't we? 
Yes, we should long to this, to help one another see where God is at work in each other's lives. And so encouraging one another, not motivating one another by helping, by heaping guilt and shame upon each other as we always point out the black dot in one another's lives, but rather motivating one another by grace, helping one another see that God is near and he's at work. There's a way to motivate and encourage believers, fellow believers, by pointing them to God's grace and making them aware of God's grace. And the result is often joy and gladness and a heart, an encouraged heart that says, I want to pursue the Lord. I want to know Him more. I'm so glad because I feel so weak and I'm aware of my weakness. I'm so glad that you see Him with me and at work in me. Sometimes I think in our Reformed heritage. I was talking with a brother over dinner about this. Because we, we, we could look at our own lives and see this take place. Sometimes I think in our Reformed heritage, I think we can try to motivate people towards godliness through sharpness and shame instead of through gladness and grace. I see in my life I don't know what it is. It's, well, it's pride. It's what it is. But when I, it was like when I started seeing the Word and, and was learning the Word, and wow, the temptation was like almost to, to use the sword of the Word in an unhelpful, painful way against others. That's not the intention. And I think as a, as a young man, I was rehearsing this with another brother. I just, wow, I just saw how, how proud I was, how I was misusing the word in a, in a painful way. I think sometimes we look to the reformers and we see this tenacity, this, this passion. And sometimes there are things, and we say, we want to be like that. We see the reformers and what good it did in church history. And we say, I want that. I want to be like that. But there are not always good things when we look back at the Reformation. There's a book called Calvin's Company of Pastors, and it highlights so much good. In fact, your pastors, us, we have taken so much from this book that has served us. The way they met people in their homes, the way they pursued people, the way they cared about health and the life of the church. But these were still men, men prone to sin capable of it and not everything was good let me read you something some geneva's of geneva's pastors so these are pastors who were with calvin in the 1500s here some of geneva's pastors were very much liked but listen to this more frequently geneva's pastors were disliked not because they were incompetent but because of their combative personalities their harsh sermons and their sharp reprimands. Though nearly all of Geneva's ministers drew criticism from time to time for sermons that were too severe or too pointed, several men were particularly notorious for stirring popular outrage by their vitriolic and abusive preaching. Angry words and incessant scolding too easily masqueraded as the reformed virtue of holy vehemence. A widow perceptively described this tendency in an interview in 1581. The ministers become angry when they show zeal in the pulpit. 
She complained, whether this style of preaching was born of holy zeal or bad temper, it created emotional distance and resentment between the preacher and members of his congregation. One man complained that the preachers do nothing but insult people. A similar criticism was voiced by a girl speaking of her minister. Whenever he speaks, it seems that he wants to bite people. Geneva's small council sometimes felt it necessary to summon the ministers to demand that they moderate their tone, reminding them that sermons should edify, not scandalize the people of God. We can learn a lot from church history. Church, I've said this before, a heart posture of being glad in grace, whether that be by leaders or congregation, is a healing balm to a church. A balm is like a medicine. You put, you put it on when there's hurt. A glad heart in grace is like a balm to a church. Spiritual medicine that gives life in a church and strengthens and encourages the church. It leads us to enjoy one another, to bear with one another, to honor one another. It makes for a humble and happy community and a community that lovingly and patiently helps one another grow in spiritual maturity. Did you catch that? Lovingly and patiently grow. So not that we overlook the needed growth. We're first aware of grace and then we see it's a loving, patient growth with one another. Listen, listen here. That's what we see at the end of this passage. If you skip down to verses 25 and 26, a true community saturated in the grace of God has a commitment to patient growth in grace. It's not that we ignore the areas of needed growth. It's that we are glad in grace and then we're committed to patiently growing in grace with one another. Barnabas sees their need to grow He rejoices in grace at the beginning of this passage. And then at the end, he goes and gets Paul and they stay, they come back to the church and they stay with the church for a whole year teaching them. It's a commitment to patient growth in grace. We see the growth, but we say, it's patiently walking with each other. Let's commit. When was the last time someone brought you a struggle and you said, let's commit to a year of walking through this with one another? It's patient, a commitment to patient growth and grace. Oh my. Oh, how the church would be served by a commitment to patient growth and grace. Oh, and it's here. I love this. The very end of this section. It's here. It's in this context. In light of this glad, encouraging, patient grace that they are first called Christians. Isn't that amazing? We gain the very name that identifies us with Christ within a community glad in grace, encouraging in the faith, and committed to patiently growing with one another. We're going to have to finish quickly here. Only two points, I said. We're going to close with this point. Here's what's interesting. Verse 24, we see what is empowering this in Barnabas' life, the empowering source for seeing and celebrating grace. It says, For he was a good man. And how? What made him a good, encouraging, grace-seeing, and celebrating man? He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. It wasn't just his personality. How many times do we chalk up, oh, that's just a really encouraging person. 
I'm not an encourager because it's not my personality. How many times have we thought that? I'm just, that guy's just really glad all the time. That's just his personality. He's just bubbly and passionate. No, this is not his personality. What is the source for his being glad in grace and, and encouraging the church? It's the Holy Spirit filling him full of faith. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? Spirit of God at work in his people, filling them full, full of the Spirit. We would say, Everyone who has been called into the family of God has the Spirit of God. The Spirit has powerfully worked within them to apply the truths of the gospel and imparts faith to believe and follow Jesus. And what we also see in the Bible is that God intends to continually, daily, fill His people with increased power for a faithful Christian life and witness. And He does that through the regular, ongoing empowering work of the Spirit. And the Bible calls this being filled with the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. It's the same Spirit that first opened Barnabas' eyes and ignited his heart with gladness and filled him full of faith when he looked to Christ, his Savior. And it's the very same Spirit now at work as he looks at the church, filling him full of faith his heart ignited with gladness. And why is it important for the Spirit to fill us full of faith as we look at the imperfect church? Why is it important to look at brothers and sisters full of faith? First, well, three things. Faith enables us to see past grace, present grace, and future grace. Here's what I mean by that. First, faith looking at past grace, sees the sin failures of Christ's people and looks back at Christ's saving work on the cross and believes with an assured heart that all of their sin failures have already been paid for and are forgiven. And if God can forgive their offenses, then surely I can forgive their offenses. Now there may be times, there may be times where there is a healthy parting of ways. We see that even in Scripture. There may be times, but we don't go there quickly. We don't go there quickly. Faith, faith first must bring us to the cross. It takes us to saying, no, their sins. I could take offense. Their sins have been paid for. So what does forgiveness look like in this? What does it look like to forgive? Faith takes us first to look upon past grace. Looking at the cross Second, faith sees present grace. It sees the needed growth that someone needs today and looks with confidence to Christ and believes He is at work sanctifying His people right here, right now. It believes the unseen Lord is present and powerfully at work even in hard places and among immature people. Present grace. And it's faith that looks to future grace. It sees the imperfections of Christ's people today and looks to the future with hope in Christ and believes He is faithful to one day bring to completion what He has begun in the lives of His people. And church, when we look at one another this way, with faith aware of past grace, present grace, and future grace, it enables us to be a community filled with being glad in grace 
and encouraging and stirring one another on in the faith. Don't we need that? Don't we want that? Precious church, I long for that for us. It's faith that we need here. And here's what I love. Here's what I love. The way the, way the Lord just ties this all together. At the beginning, you see the, the Lord building his church and his power through evangelism, right? You see that in the first several verses. The Lord's building his church through evangelism. People are being scattered, believers going forth, they're sharing Christ, the hand of the Lord is with them. He's adding and building to the church. And then you hear all of this stuff in the middle about being people glad in grace, encouragement, teaching. And what do you see at the end here? What do you see in, ver- in verses 23 through 24? The Lord is once again building his church. He's building it through encouragement. Isn't that something beautiful? He's building it through evangelism at the beginning of this passage and then at the end here, he's building it through encouragement as the church is stirring one another on towards Christ, aware of grace, celebrating grace, encouraging one another on in grace and the Lord builds his church. Oh church, may that be us. Here's the deal. We need the power of the Lord, His precious Spirit to do this, don't we? And we do it imperfectly. So we even do this imperfectly, don't we? It's an imperfect church. We do this imperfectly. But we want to trust that He is with us, that He is at work among us. And as we run to Him, He is ready and willing to impart more grace to help in time of need. Isn't that what the Word says? Grace, maybe, maybe not to be evangelistic superheroes on the side of the street or whatever it might be. Maybe it's just simple grace to just be a fellow church member who loves the, another, another member. Maybe it's just simple grace to encourage one another on in the faith as we patiently grow in grace with each other. I think that's a simple step for us to take. Can we just ask the Lord for simple grace? yet powerful grace to just help us love one another and to be a community glad in grace. 